Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This is a bonus episode filling in the space between Season 7 and Season 8. This episode is brought to you by Islamic History Exclusive. We have four seasons so far of Islamic History Exclusive. That is our premium podcast. Within those four episodes, we discuss the struggle between Ibn Zubair and the Umayyads, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and currently two seasons of the Umayyad Caliphate. So if you want to hear more about Islamic history, if this current podcast is not enough for you, consider joining Islamic History Exclusive. To join, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History or to my personal website, islamichistoryexclusive.com. This episode is also brought to you by the Prophet Muhammad podcast. It is a free podcast covering the life of Allah's last messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It is available on all platforms. All right, so with that housekeeping out of the way, quick discussion about today's episode. If you've been following this podcast for more than a year or so, you would know that I first interviewed my guest, Brother Muhammad Artan, about Somali and Islam roughly about a year, a year ago, sometime around the middle, middle of April 2021. That first conversation was about two hours long, and I do suggest you go listen to that one first. However, you can listen to today's podcast without having the background material from a year ago. However, in the last podcast, we discussed Brother Muhammad's life and his own personal experiences as a, a Somali immigrant living in the UK. And so if you want to know more about our guest, then you should go listen to the previous podcast. But once again, this podcast would be sufficient if you just want to listen to this one right now. In the last podcast, the previous one from last year, we talked about the early history of Somalia. We talked about Somalia before Islam and how Islam came to, to Somalia and how it spread through Somalia. And that podcast was very popular. Since then, no less than three people have asked me for a follow-up episode. And the thing I know about podcasts is that people don't really give their feedback very often because when you're listening to a podcast, you're usually listening while you're driving, walking, exercising, working, something like that, and your hands aren't really free. So when people take the time out to actually ask me for something, then I know that they are really serious about it, and there are probably a hundred more people who want the same thing. So Alhamdulillah, Sheikh Mohammed Artan was gracious enough to oblige me when I asked him for a follow-up episode and I assure you, he did not disappoint today. This is an amazing episode. I know I say that about every episode, but I really mean it this time. This is really a good episode. I've learned so much. I could have talked to him for hours. I had to force myself to end the conversation after an hour just trying to be disciplined. I mean, we talk about East Africa and the Quran. We talk about the origins of the word Somalia. We talk about the uh, warrior culture of Somalia. It is an absolutely amazing conversation. Honestly, seriously, listen to it. I think you're going to enjoy it, inshallah. One quick error I made, or one small error I made, when the conversation begins, I forget, or I forgot, I should say, to greet uh, Sheikh Muhammad Artan with the greetings of Islam, Assalamu alaikum. 
But I didn't really forget because we had been talking for several minutes before I actually pressed record. And of course, I greeted him then. But now I don't really interview people very often. So sometimes these things slip my mind. So when we started talking, I didn't actually greet him. But rest assured, I did greet him when we first picked up the phone and started talking. So that's a small fall paw on my part, a mistake on my part. Inshallah, if I interview more people and get more comfortable doing this sort of thing, I'll hopefully get better. But once again, I did greet our brother in the beginning of our conversation just before I actually pressed record. That being said, I would appreciate any feedback you have about this episode. If you want more things like this, if you have any suggestions, any positive or negative feedback, let me know. I'll be happy to hear from you. So that's going to end it for the intro. Let's get into this conversation with Sheikh Mohammed Artan about Somalia and Islam. Assalamu alaikum. I have a special guest with me today, my friend, my brother from across the ocean, Brother Mohammed Artan. Brother Mohammed Artan, how are you doing today? Alhamdulillah, I'm well. Jazakallah khair for having me once more, Mutaki. Alhamdulillah, we're, I'm glad to have you. We have uh, the last time we spoke was about a year ago, and we discussed uh, Islam in Somalia, and it has generated a lot of feedback. At least for it's a lot of feedback for podcasting. We got at least three questions or three people asking, "When are you going to do a part two? When are you going to do a part two? And the thing about a podcast is that. People don't normally get to do feedback because they listen to a podcast when they're walking or when they're driving, and so they don't normally do feedback. So if one person asks for something, you can be guaranteed, be certain that there are probably another 100 people who want the same thing. So let's assume there are 300 people asking for this part too, Brother Muhammad, and we're going to give it to them, inshallah. So, all right, as we are we are across. We have an ocean between us, so our um, times are very different. So I don't want to waste too much time. But briefly, the last time we spoke, I remember we discussed the uh, religion in East Africa and particularly Somalia before Islam came. And listeners, if you're not familiar with that, you got to go back and listen to part one. But you can probably listen to this without going back to part one. Also, however, we discussed the religion. Uh, Waki, I believe it was called, that came before Islam. But what I'm curious to know is we have Waqiya, which came well before Islam, and then we have Islam. But in between there, there was a period of time when we had uh, Christianity and Judaism definitely existed in that area. So I wanted to know, Brother Muhammad, if you can tell us a little bit more about that period of time after Christianity and Judaism had come on the scene and they had large Christian kingdoms and things like that. What was Somalia and East Africa doing during that period of time? Sure, sure. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala nabiyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa man tawahim bihsan ila yumidina ma ba'd. Jazakallah. Once more, for having me, inshallah, like you said, there's quite a lot of time difference uh, across the ocean. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's good to be back here. Um, just to jump into your uh, question, uh, in terms of uh, the Horn of Africa, you know, what happened between the period of um, Christianity and Islam in the Horn of Africa? So we just have to first and foremost uh, situate our listeners to uh, the Horn of Africa. The Horn of Africa is 
basically the fourth largest uh, peninsula in the world. And it consists of modern day Djibouti state, uh, modern day Ethiopia, uh, modern day Eritrea, uh, and modern day Somalia, um, slash Somaliland, the, the sort of um, uh, the, uh, the, the breakaway as it were. And it's a very, uh, very, uh, you know, area, geographical area. Uh, ethnically, and as well as culturally, as well as linguistically, is very diverse um, geographical area with rich history dating back to the earliest ancient civilizations and religions, right? So it's also the home to, uh, like you mentioned, followers of the three major Abrahamic major world religions, mm -hmm. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And it has also a, a, a various adherence of other African indigenous religions. It's also actually the only place on the globe that these Afri uh, Abrahamic religions can trace their early foundations on. Mm -hmm. So one way or the other, uh, all three religions are somewhat impacted uh, by the Horn of Africa. That's so right. that is uh, coming from 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 that background. Really crucial area if 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 we tend to understand. And we we should also uh, mention and make make a note that the oldest Christian uh, state that uh, formed on the African Peninsula was the Ethiopian Aksumite Empire. Right. So uh, they became officially and accepted the Christian. Uh, uh, faith, I think, around third century uh, uh, CE, right? Mm -hmm. So that is really quite earlier on uh, that they that they accepted that religion. So the horn, in essence, was deemed, uh, in in that sense, a a a, a connection place, a networking place for higher civilizations, not only for religious uh, uh, purposes, but also obviously. For you know, uh, empires and, and 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 people that interconnected with uh, one another, and so the the Giz language, and I'll explain that inshallah down the line. Uh, the Giz language is the official or was the official language of the Aksumite Empire, and the Aksumite Empire was this empire that we just earlier on mentioned, which became a Christian, uh, followed the Christian faith uh, that basically people followed in uh, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and, and parts of uh, Somali Peninsula, right? Okay. And so this Giz language actually, and the vocabulary of the Giz language affected the Arabic language to an extent that even today, as well as the Arabic languages, a lot of Arabic language, uh, sort of loan words uh, come from the Giz uh, um, Abyssinian languages. Mm. So that is that is something that has been because the huge influence that uh, the Aksumite Empire had on the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, and so that is that's really important to understand that you know it's always been uh, both ways influences. It's not always it's, it's it's not always that you know influences came from the Arabian Peninsula to the continent, but it's also happened that from the continent influence has been uh, uh, spread throughout the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this also came through, uh, you know, a high rate of uh, intermarriages, 
many prominent Arabs in pre-Islamic Yemen as well as the Hejaz. Hejaz is modern day, uh, you know, Mecca, Medina, right. and Jeddah, and basically Saudi Arabia and that sort of things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, many, many of these prominent Arabs uh, trace their um, uh, ancestry or, or 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 their parent from the uh, Aksumite Empire or from the Habashi origin, right? And Somalia, therefore, or the Somalis, in essence, the group that we are talking about specifically today, is a modern state that is born out of that uh, traditional part of that traditional uh, setting. Uh, obviously, Somalia, as it is today, is a post-colonial identity that has formed much, much like many other African nations uh, that we have today. So classically then, to, to sort of um, uh, get back to my point, so classically during the late 6th and 7th centuries, Somalis lived a, 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 a portion within the Aksumite Empire located in Northeast Africa, which we'd mentioned earlier in Djibouti, Somaliland, Somalia, Eritrea, and those type of areas. Mm-hmm. Or they lived in a smaller clustered uh, coastal city-states like like uh, what is known as Ale, Hobyo, Mogadishu, and we'll talk about them later in the Lakrim. Then there are, or there were pastoral Somalis who roamed around uh, in the interior, um, most of which uh, Somalis are made of today. And so these are the type of Somali uh, um, uh, types of societies that lived in, in the peninsula. And to conclude, in 525 CE, when the invasion of Yemen happened by the Aksumite Empire, mm-hmm. a, a records and historical rec- a, a record mention that there were a force of 120,000 men that was transported in ships from the coast of the Red Sea, which included modern-day Berbera. Uh, which is an ancient uh, poor city located in the Somali Peninsula today. And so many, many of the people that actually invaded Yemen and invaded Hejaz were directly exported from, or uh, the military were directly recruited from the Aksumite Empire that lived in, in that part of the world. And so historians generally mention that there were two invasions that took place. So in 525, as we mentioned earlier on, as well as 570. And 570 is when the Prophet وسلم, is the year that is born and the year that is also known as Amul Fil, the year of the elephant. And this is the year when uh, the, the, the Abraha invaded from Yemen to Mecca. And we know the episodes through the Quran that their army was destroyed um, through the um, miraculous intervention of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, according to our uh, historical sources, our, by our, I mean the Muslim sources. And um, and this is when basically the, the Aksumite Empire, uh, sorry, the Aksumite army completely and utterly was destroyed. Uh, subsequently, many, many of the survivors of that uh, ended up uh, either returning home or becoming soldiers of fortune, others were enslaved, and it is also the case with any, as, as it is also the case with any, you know, uh, losing uh, army. Mm-hmm. So this is also why we have so many other, again, Arab clans and famous individuals that were the product of such unions and such intermixing 
of different uh, societies and cultures. Okay. I, 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 I don't know whether I answered that question adequately, but yeah, that, okay. to, to sum up a long history. <laughs> well, that brings up a, uh, a bunch of other questions. Now, you mentioned that there were two invasions. We know the second one that was in 570, around the time of the birth of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu That was the, you know, the Amal Field, the Year of the Elephant, and the, um, the big event that happened there. The one before that, that was in 525, is, mm-hmm. is that the one that was... Um, Connected to Suratul um, Buruj with the um... yes, you okay. got that right. Yes, so this is the the the, the prior invasion. Uh, some some of the historians say that that is slightly bit earlier date wise that mm-hmm. episode of that um, uh, uh, invasion or that conflict uh, because it's uh, it talks about you know. Um, uh, People who follow uh, the the Christian religion um, uh, accurately, and they were being pressured and and, and persecuted mm-hmm. that way. But in, in 525, uh, essentially, what we have is through the Greek uh, records as well as some of the um, older uh, uh, tablets, the uh, uh, stones that have been archaeologically wise uh, discovered and and and, and, and uh, explored. That we, you know, they mentioned that in round about that time, the first invasion happened from uh, Habasha or from Aksumite Empire. And um, one of the records actually mentions that a force of 220,000 men was, were transported in ships from the coast. As, and some of these, uh, you know, um, coastal areas that they left from included Berbera, as we said, which is an ancient Somali port city today, um, which you can find it located in the modern uh, uh, Somaliland area. And so that is uh, mentioned uh, as part of that. And you can find those references, inshallah, hopefully in the show notes, and uh, as we will supply them later on. Okay, so that's that's interesting. It's actually very fascinating um, to see that those two surahs, those two chapters of the Quran, Surah Al-Buruj and Surah Al-Fil, Buruj, I believe, means um, castle of stars, something like that. I can't remember the exact English translation. Constellation, something like that. And mm-hmm. um, Amalfil, of course, or Surotofil means the chapter of the elephant. And I don't want to get too deep into it, but Surotofil Buruj, for those who may not be aware, there's a portion of Surotofil Buruj. Well, it's actually, there's a longer hadith that's a story about a boy and a king. We don't have to go deep into the story, but essentially, there in um, what is now Yemen, if I'm not mistaken, there was a um, a kingdom that was ruled by the, I believe the Hadith, or at least the stories say, by a Jewish emperor or a Jewish king. He began to persecute his Christian subjects, and the Quran mentions it in Surah Al-Buruj, and eventually the Christian kingdom, of the, I guess that was the Aksumite kingdom, eventually sent soldiers over there to punish him for what he did. Now, from that mm-hmm first initial invasion in 525 is that where abraha came from because that's a long period of time almost 50 year difference or did he just yeah did he come i guess he could not have come during that first invasion would have been too young or or, or Mm. too old actually to have still been around in 570 so was it like an occupation Mm. where he eventually just came over on a regular mission or Mm. i mean i know this i'm not sure how much details you have on that but how did abraha get over there in the first place 
your conclusions are uh, logical and right because it it, it would have been uh, too long for him to be around uh, for that period but also it's not far fetched to say that at least he was part of that uh, first wave of that invasion uh, reason being is uh, shortly after the um, the episode of the elephant the invasion with the elephants where, where basically most of his uh, followers and 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 uh, uh, soldiers perished we we have nothing again from Afraha in terms of records we do have a story along the line whereby his son survived and tried to uh, maintain the uh, the the governorship that his father left behind but that obviously quickly dissipated as as obviously his uh, central power did not really anymore exist uh, and so from it was based in Sana'a at the time and so uh, coming back to your original question yeah it is it is a long time but uh, it, it it could have been that he was part of uh, that but Abraha was a governor of that uh, uh, satellite state of the Aksumite Empire, which was uh, uh, after they've defeated the Hemyarit or the, the Hemyarit kingdom. Okay, and that brings up an, uh, more questions, of course. You mentioned how some of these soldiers were uh, who, those who survived the, um, the punishment sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Those, those who survived the birds dropping the stones on them and all. They would have most likely they didn't escape. They would have probably have been enslaved by the local Arabs there. Now we know that there are several um, companions of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu mm-hmm. who were of we call it Abyssinian descent, but it may not that may not be the um, accurate word for them. But it would maybe Oxmite mm-hmm. descent or whatever. They would have come from the that region, the Horn of Africa. Of course, most prominent, mm. of course, is... I normally just call it, I just normally say mm. Northeast Africans or okay. uh, uh, or the Horners, because at least it describes the geographical areas as we know it today. Okay, okay. So the most prominent, of course, would have been Bilal ibn Rabah, but there were others. There was um, Wahshi ibn Harb, I believe, the one who killed um, Hamza, um, the Prophet's mm-hmm. uncle. There was also, I think, mm-hmm. I believe the prophet also had either a nursemaid or um, a, a woman who, who cared for him when he was very, very young, who was also of Abyssinian descent, and or mm-hmm. of Northeast African descent, let me correct myself, as well mm-hmm. as um, the companion Ahmad ibn Yasir. I think he was half Arab, half, half um, North African, I'm not really certain, but his parents, I believe, were freed slaves when they accepted Islam or something along those lines. Um, mm-hmm. These now Bilal and Washi would have probably have not been because they I believe they're around the same age as the Prophet Muhammad Hassan. They couldn't have been much older than him if they were older than him. So they would not have been soldiers. Maybe Ammar mm-hmm. bin Yasir, but do you know if any of these companions or any of these early Muslims were in any way related to that invasion from mm-hmm. um five seventy eight uh five seventy CE, don't want to say AD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are quite a number of the uh, companions who are either children or direct uh, descendants mm-hmm. of, of, okay. of, of those captured, uh, those who stayed voluntarily, because not everybody was captured and enslaved. Mm-hmm. Some, of the, some of them, you know, worked and stayed behind because, you know, they have a skill set to offer. You have to remember these were highly sophisticated, highly skilled individuals 
who came from one of the uh, uh, biggest empires of the day. Right. It's you know, it, the, and you know, the Aksumite Empire um, was the one of the three major empires of the world at the time, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the Sassanid Empire was one of it, and the Byzantium Empire was the other. And then the third was the Aksumite Empire. And those empires literally not only ruling a large segments of uh, the known world as it were at the time, but also at the same time, what they did was they had a huge economic power in that sense, mm -hmm. you know, and so um people who were captured or people who lost and people who um uh, came back from there did not necessarily all of them end up in slavery nor did all of them um end up being unskilled or unappreciated so many of them became uh, scholars many of them became teachers many of them became uh, professionals in typical uh, different varieties of artisans to the point where Mecca had a whole um, uh, uh, or the areas of Mecca had a whole area whereby uh, it was you known the, the quarter of the Habashis, the quarter of uh, Northeast Africans in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, later on during the Badr uh, battles, there, were going to be, uh, there was going to be a large group of Northeast Africans that are hired by the Quraysh to fight against the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in the in that in, in in the battle in the battle of Badr. So and that came from you know the the quarter of the Habashis that was famously around in in Mecca. Mm -hmm. And so not everybody was uh, in that sense. And and I I just um, recalled an episode whereby uh, you know Al Jahid. Uh, I, I, I believe you're familiar with Al-Jahid, mm -hmm. uh, who was a scholar of uh, Arabic literature. He was a biologist. He was an evolutionary scholar. You know, he, one of those guys with a lot of hats. Right. Uh, in, in around about 255 uh, Hijri, after Hijri, which was around 869 uh, CE, he wrote with extreme pride, <laughs> I might add mm -hmm. about that um, about the whole episode of uh, Ashab al-Fil. He said, and I quote: uh, "He said we were the owners of the Arab lands from uh, from all the way from all the way of the Horn of Africa or Northeast Africa or Abyssinia in that sense up to Mecca." And he said, "Our rules were applied and obeyed by all." You know <laughs> that that all, everybody sort of um, followed us. So to to sort of paint a picture that uh, we were not just you know uh, unskilled uh, right. slaves or or these type of things. And so this is this is a point of pride for him in that sense that he's mentioning. And the reason I mention all of this is because obviously a lot of these uh, uh, people that stayed behind whether they stayed behind forcefully or they voluntarily stayed behind, mm -hmm. had a lot to add to the uh, uh, Southern Arabian Peninsula. And so, like you said, Bilal ibn Rabah's mother, for example, was one of those. Uh, okay. It's mentioned that she was a captive or one of those women of royal descent because a lot of the uh, uh, women who um, uh, were with their uh, commanders, right. with, the, uh, with, with the hierarchy, they came from a royalty background. And so it's been said that uh, uh, 
Bilal's mother was one of them uh, as one um, as, as, as those individuals. So this is not a a, a surprise, and we will we shall we will see this again and again and again coming back in the early seer of the Prophet وسلم, when you study the genealogy and, and, and lineage of, of some of the companions, you will see many of them going back to saying, oh, this was an uh, uh, you know, Abyssinian, this was an Abyssinian, this was an Habashi. And by the way, just to add to when you mentioned earlier on the word Habasha, right. the term Habasha in Arabic comes from uh, or relates to uh, another term called Habash or Habish or tahabush, mm-hmm. all of these means to gather or to collect, okay. uh, uh, you know, this, this group of people from different uh, different backgrounds that are somewhat collected together or grouped together. And so it wouldn't be in, in our uh, modern uh, day where everybody's labeled by the ethnicities and their linguistic groupings and stuff. It wouldn't be accurate to call everybody then Habasha uh, or Habush or Habish, because uh, as as it stands today, specifically, there are specific group of ethnicities that are known by that, right? Mm-hmm. The Habashas, and so it wouldn't be uh, appropriate to sort of lump everybody together with that term. However, if it's fitting that we can use like Northeast Africans or uh, people from Horn, Horn of Africa, or people even from East Africa, in in essence, or Name the specific ethnicities when we know them, inshallah, we will do that just to okay. avoid confusion. Okay, understood. Now, speaking of this, um, something you mentioned um, sparked an, um, another question, I guess. Um, the, uh, I guess he, was a, he wasn't a companion yet, I guess he eventually became one, but Wahshi ibn Harb, the one who killed, who was hired to kill Hamza. Um, Ibn Abdul Muttalib, the Prophet's uncle. Uh, so yeah. I'm sure most Muslims know this. For those who may not know this, I'll, I'll try to briefly keep briefly discuss the story. This took place in the Battle of Uhud, the the second major battle between the uh, Muslims following Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi based in Medina, and the Quraysh uh, following at this point in time Abu Sufyan based in Mecca. They was the Quraysh was still pagan. There was a battle in. Before this, there's a major battle of Badr, and Abu Sufyan's wife lost many relatives during that battle. And so she paid um, an, a Northeast African slave. Um, she offered him um, emancipation, freedom, as well as some gold if he were to kill Hamza, who was responsible for killing several of her, of her um, relatives. So during the Battle of Ahud, Wahshi used a javelin or a spear. He was well-trained in it and, and very skillful with it. And he used this to kill Hamza, the prophet's uncle, who had killed many of Abu Sufyan's wife's relatives from the previous battle. So now that we see that there were many warriors who stayed behind from that invasion in 570, we can it now make sense why Wahshi was so skilled with the javelin. Maybe perhaps he was a descendant or a son or... He, he probably would have been too old or too young to have been taking part in the battle itself. Mm. Uh, yeah, he probably would have been. It was the prophet about about sixty year difference, so he would have been too old. Uh, maybe about fifty mm. year difference actually. He would have been too young, but still, perhaps he was one of those warriors, or maybe one of those people who were descended from one of those warriors who had learned that skill. Mm. So this, of course, mm. brings up the question about this um, warrior class or these warriors who 
who uh, took part in this invasion and how much mm-hmm. of a warrior mentality or warrior culture existed in East Af- in, Nor- in Northeast Africa, even mm-hmm. even before mm-hmm. Islam or even after Islam. Um, what kind of is this warrior? Was this was there a warrior culture? I don't want to put it on there. Was there a warrior culture? Most ancient civilizations or older civilizations had a class of warrior. So I'm wondering if East Africa, Northeast Africa, mm. had a similar thing. Uh, yeah, um, your your um, connection of the two is amazingly accurate. Uh, obviously, with many. Uh, uh, older societies and cultures, specifically if they are located in uh, centers or hubs of uh, commerce and network uh, uh, places, they tend to be either um, uh, um, very protective of their geographical areas and economic supremacy. And you can only do that um, by, uh, you know, uh, having uh, a good um, martial arts skills or even improving those things. And so uh, historically, Somali society uh, itself, the Somalis specifically here that we want to focus on and uh, hopefully link it to early Islam or, uh, or pre-Islam or the dawn of Islam, uh, sort of accorded uh, prestige to the uh, warrior. And in Somali, the warrior, in essence, was called waranle. And I'll explain that term in a minute. And so the the the, the warrior class in in Somalia was called uh, Waranle, and 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 they had an amazing military prowess. So the the, the their love and passion for uh, uh, how do you say for conflict and fighting was mm-hmm. uh, very very legendary. Okay. So the the Waranle. Uh, in Somali, the word waranle meaning he who wields spear, because waran in Somali means spear, right? And there is there is some yeah means someone who owns a spear or someone who wields a spear, and so that's like two words that are joined together. Uh, and then there is another word for it that uh, slightly bit older, and it's also used for that same meaning, which is samayleh. Samai means the spearman or the warrior himself, the one that wields the the spear. So it's sort of connected to that. So it's a descriptive name for the uh, basically the Somali warrior who never went without his weapon, right? And so the Somali spear, as we said earlier, which was the Warren, um, like many other spears around the world, has a a a sort of the the blade that is at the front is a bit of long and then it has the staff which is the wooden bit which is called samai where the samaileh comes from and then uh, it's also in addition it has a is a back end which is in somali called jufu and uh, which is sort of uh, a metal coverage and it has a pointy end of it so that you can stick it to the uh, ground so that you know your your sword blade does not get um, uh, broken and so it was even insult if you would smack smack someone with that end you know the wrong end of it if you smack someone with it it would be like an insult back mm-hmm. in the day and so it, it meant like someone who you're not um, who's not worthy of your time or you will not normally uh, deal with so conversely the somali word samaileh or the spear which we said uh, was the staff is closely related to the arabic word of uh, samala so samala is the act to pierce 
someone with a pointy metallic object. So this mm. Arabic word samala is a is it's very close to samaila. I think right? I know you're going with this. Go As on. Can, <laughs> yeah, you can hear right. <laughs> yeah. So there there is an uh, uh, so the Arabs would say samala aino. He put out his eye, or he blinded him. So when do you want to say someone he put an eye, or he's blinded him? They would say samala aino. Uh, so it's like you know, uh, it's, they use that. As, as it's people use for needles and sharp uh, pointy abstracts to poke at someone's eye. So, but the Arabic word though, this is where the funny thing is, the Arabic actual word for a spear is romah. And so romah is not the one, the word that is used for this. So for example, the Arabs will say, I cast at him with a spear. So it's sort of, I speared his eye out, or I, sorry, I speared, I, I, I speared him through and through, like, like that, you know, right. I killed him. So there's, you can see the relations between these two words, although one is a Cushitic word, slightly uh, um, uh, adapted later on by the Arabs, and it became a loan word uh, by the Arabs or the Arabic language. So similarly, pronunciation-wise, it closely resembles the word um, uh, that uh, the Habashis, or as well as uh, Northeast Africans of Habashi descent, uh, with with the Semitic languages used a lot of the times, uh, which is Simur. So it's it's all in all an indicative or an image that shows that basically describes the warrior, the actual warrior, by the weapon he wielded. So that's why those who have slain an enemy in battle wore an ostrich feather stuck upright in their in their hair. So you see old pictures, Somali old pictures, or Afar old pictures, warriors specifically. And when you see whenever you see like a feather thing sticking out of the hair, mm -hmm. that means that someone who just basically graduated from uh um uh, what is what is that? What's the term for an, uh, when someone is uh, recruited just barely recently? Someone who basically go, went out of uh, um, like a rookie, you know, like a rookie. Thank you. <laughs> that's the word I was looking for. So someone that's not a rookie anymore. So you you see that that's why they they wear they wear that thing uh, that pokes out of their hair, you know. And so the Somalis have so many terminologies and names that are only related to not only the waran or, or or the spear, but everything and anything related to the spear as well. You had uh, objects that the spear is made from, the way spear is used, the type of spears that there are actually, there's mm -hmm. shorter ones, there's longer ones, there's the thin ones, there's the thick ones, there are names for all of this, right? There's ones that people use for um, uh, um, what is close combat. There's one people use for uh, 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 um, uh, longer distant combat, right. and so a lot, a lot of this, however, is down the line completely and utterly uh, lost. And I'm not going to go into the details of these things and their terminologies. Uh, and it is really important to understand that this this culture was so vibrant and so closely guarded and so closely. Um, uh, practiced and passed on son to, uh, from son to father, or, I mean, from father to son and so on and so on, that it survived till till the colonial period, basically, in mm -hmm. essence. Okay. Yeah. Now, there's, um, 
a few questions I got I got from that. I want to confirm. I want to first of all, it makes complete sense now. It makes complete sense why Washi would have been good with the javelin or with the spear and during his time, if he came or if his ancestors, his father or uncle, whomever he descended from, came from that same culture. Yeah. He was part of that warrior class. And I want to make sure I bring this home now. You mentioned that uh, the word, the Arabic word for for spear, and I'm hoping I messed it up, was thamala. Is that where the word for Somalia comes from? I want to make sure. That's why when you mentioned, that's where I, I was. I thought you were going with. That. I want to make sure that I'm on that same page. So the word Somalia comes from this um, mm-hmm. word that the Arabs seem to have borrowed from. East from Northeast Africa in the first place. It comes from mm-hmm. uh, or corruption or maybe. A, Maybe corruption isn't the best word, but it comes from evolution of the word for spear. Am I correct in making that assumption or statement? Actually, it's not only an assumption. That's and one of the theories. Actually, okay, it's good that you mentioned that, um, and uh, I didn't um, add it to my points. But one of the uh, possibilities that people, you know, there are a variety of theories and and, right. and hypotheses there where the word Somali came from, mm-hmm. and none of it actually sticks to be honest uh, okay. but one of the one of the uh, one of the reasons uh, one of the explanations rather is that uh, the word arabic the arabic origin of samala meaning to thrust out mm-hmm. uh, they say so named and this is one of our teachers one of the things that he um, has in his book which is called uh, in somali the the somali history and its language the somali people and their language he mentions um, our, our teacher mentions that the word Samala was named the Somalis were originally named Samala because they say there was an, an Arab noble by the name of Shidat who thrusted out the eye of his brother. You know, they he, he basically, as that statement we just mentioned earlier, and as a consequence was himself thrusted out of Arabia, after which he settled in the Somali peninsula, right? And so this, and then he became the forefathers of the modern day Somalis. But that's obviously, um, uh, if you want to follow the hypothesis that, you know, it, the, it, the, uh, the Somalis came from the Arabs and not the other way around. Do, do you follow me? Right, right, so, right. I don't know whether that makes sense because one of the, quite a lot, many of the theories on Somali origins or Somali origin uh, stories is always one way or the other related to, oh, yeah, we come from Arab or we come from that kind of yeah, Arab yeah. or this or that, you know, and th- as is the case with a lot of Muslim societies around the globe, right? right, right. And so, uh, but this is one of those theories that is uh, p- uh, uh, put forth that uh, Somali's uh, origin stories comes from there. However, mm-hmm. there are, you know, maybe at least nine good ones that uh, according to me that i've managed to sort of put together uh, in terms of uh, as a as a potential explanation of theory where the word somali comes from okay okay that brings up um it's always gonna bring up more questions uh but just um to elaborate on that point of different cultures and societies um trying to link their past to uh usually some particular Arab person, um, usually one of the Sahaba, or sometimes even from Arabs in general. But it's not surprising because uh, for much of the early first 200, 200, 300 years of Islamic history, the Arabs controlled much of the Muslim world. And so I know in Pakistan, they have many Pakistanis who who uh, claim, and Allah knows best if it's true, who claim to have, who, to have descended from 
uh, Ibn Zubair, or really from Zubair Ibn Awam, the famous companion, not Ibn Zubair himself, but I believe his brother. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you have lots of uh, many P- Pakistanis who have who belong to white. Hope I'm not mis- making this a mistake with it, but they s- belong to the Zuberi clan. And I've um, mm. I'm currently researching the um, Sokoto Caliphate based in Chad in Nigeria, and I'm all, I guess it's yeah. more like Western Central Africa. And mm-hmm. and uh, many of the Muslims in that region claim to have come from I believe Ahmed Ibn As with the Anhu, and even yeah. further west when you get to the um, even though it was before this time, before the Sokoto Caliphate, the um, Mali Empire, many of them also claim to have been descended from certain Arab nobles. And Allah knows best if any of this is true, but I do understand that that would naturally happen if the Arabs controlled most of the world at that time, most of the Muslim world at that time, people would have mm-hmm. accepted it. But this um, this is question is a, a little bit off track, and we can come back to it. We, can, if you don't, if you're not certain of it, that's fine. But no, I mm-hmm. uh, I can mention a point or two if you want. Okay, yeah, on on this point about the Arab lineage and um, people. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I have I have yeah. a different question though. But yeah, we'll come back to that. Go ahead. What? Uh, go ahead. Okay, uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I noticed. I believe that um, Somalia at one point, maybe it still is, was part of the Arab League, and mm-hmm. and I found that kind of odd because their language. It's not Arabic, so I've, I can understand Sudan and other countries, but Somalia is not Arabic. Is not you know they don't speak Arabic, um, or it's not the main language. Is the lang- is a Somali language connected or de- is or descended from Arabic, or because I know lots of languages may have borrowed Arabic words, but and if it's, yeah. if you don't if it's going off too off topic, don't worry about it. We can bring it about later. But why would um Somali be part of the Arab league, Arabic. so to speak? Yeah. So the second part of your question, I'll answer uh, down mm-hmm. the line, inshallah, okay. uh, because some of the stuff that um, I, I, I want to hope, um, I hope to explore are the influence, linguistic influences, inshallah. Mm-hmm. Um, as to the question of the Arab League, the Arab League is a just uh, purely political move that the Somali military uh, oh, government okay. at the time chose. Okay. Um, it had nothing to do with a... Uh, Somalis being part of the Arabs or Arabs being part of the Somalis. It's the um, uh, move that the uh, Somali government, uh, the, the Somali military government made at the time because uh, due to the African Union uh, at the time that was around, Somalia felt that it wasn't getting its, uh, you know, due right, uh, right from the African Union and therefore uh, felt cl- much more closer to the Arab uh, League in that sense, and so they wanted to align more with the Arab League in that sense, and 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 sort of because you know they were having huge conflicts right. with uh, Ethiopia at the time, and so uh, the the Arab sorry the African Union, which had its headquarters in Addis Ababa at the time, oh, okay. uh, was somewhat. Uh, and and many of the African unions, by the way, the African nations at the time, did not want to approach the issues of uh, colonial borders. You know, the the modern colonial borders that the the, the uh, European colonials left behind. No one wanted to deal with it anymore. But Somalia was one of those countries, one of those African countries that was not happy with the status quo, and they wanted to change. They wanted to get the Kenyan uh, territories back, 
They wanted to get the Ethiopian territories back. And so many of the African states were not having those type of discussions. They didn't want that because many of these African states had these grievances with one another. So right. it's going to be a Pandora box. Mm-hmm. And Somalia wasn't sort of having it. <laughs> okay. And so and it's, it's a subsequence of those type of uh, discussions that that happened. Okay, okay. Yeah. So it's all pure, purely po- politics. Okay, fine. <laughs> I thought it was something yeah. more, yeah. you know, ethnically yeah. or li- linguistically. Okay. Now, many, go- many people, mm-hmm. many many people would actually say, yeah, you know, because of it's, it's uh, the Islamic identity, mm-hmm. because of the uh, um, many of uh, clans hailing from the Arabian Peninsula living in Somalia uh, in, in in recent times and, and 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 prior to that and so we have much more closer affinity with the arabs than african uh, nations many people would have said that and they still say that but obviously that is not the reason that the somali government at the time chose to be part of the arabian and arabian and uh, the arab league okay I, uh, politics that's yeah. not, okay. I, I would mm-hmm. i would want to i would want to uh, talk about later on, inshallah, okay. the sort of link, the link of um, those warriors, the Arab warriors and, and and the Somali warriors class. Okay, actually, I, I wanted, then, yeah, I wanted to go back to that actually because I, I didn't mean to take us off topic with the whole Arab League thing. No, no, but, okay, so now with this warrior class, and you know, I got to be careful about painting Islam as a as a violent religion or anything like that. But let's face it, our early history of Islam, there was, a, there was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of fighting. That, like most people back then were fighting. Muslims were not any different. We're not any different, more or less, than any other group. So once the, um, the, the early Khilafahs, the Umayyads, and then after them, the um, Abbasids, once they began expanding, and eventually when Somalia did come into Islam, were those warriors, the, the warrior class of Somalis, were they... Uh, beneficial? Were they? Did they take part in any of these jihads, or how did that warrior class play a role, take a part in the expansion of Islam into the different parts of the world, and I guess East Africa itself, but also any other parts of the world that may have taken yeah. part in? Yeah. Um. To to paint that to answer that question, I have to sort of uh, paint a picture that slightly uh, goes a little bit um, uh, back. Uh, in, in, in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu okay. and slightly bit earlier than that. Um, there is a, a, a amazing link between the Waranle or the warrior class that we mentioned earlier on with um, different class of Waranle or different class of warrior caste that were situated in uh, the Arabian Peninsula. And they were the poet um, uh, warrior or warrior poets. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether you're familiar with that term. Uh, the the, the, the Somali Waranle was also somewhat uh, equipped with a uncanny ability to memorize any lines of poetry mm-hmm. or, for example, masterfully compose poetic lines of his own conquest and, and, and sort of achievements and, and whatnot, right? So this ability to compose about one's adventures or one's clan's conquest or whatever not was also a form of verb, verbal martial arts for, for, for many of these warriors. Mm-hmm. So the ability, it, it meant sort of that you had the ability to, <laughs> um, uh, for better, for lack of a better word, to castrate your enemy's willpower, okay. right? Uh, so, and, ment- and mentally sort of uh, demoralize them. Sometimes 
you know, uh, it would even solve problems. You know, they would they would gather and they would have uh, 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 how do you say a, a a sort of a competition uh, what we today would call a a diss or rap competition. Yeah, a rap battle. You know, they would have yeah. rap battle like that. They would have those type of things, and sometimes this would. Um, Put to stop an all-out conflict on, and confrontations because depending on who won, then that uh, party would walk away uh, losing without any bloodshed, right? Uh, and so these type of things existed. However, if we go look at the Arabian Peninsula, for example, in this, the, the, you can see that they were very um, similar to what we know in Islamic as well as Arabic literature as a group of people that were called Aghribat al-Arab. So the Aghribat al-Arab were pre-Islamic as well as early Islamic poets who were grouped under the name of Aghribat al-Arab, or, or in another words, crows of the Arabs or ravens of the Arabs. Okay. And the crow here is a, a meaning, uh, a common reference to their black being uh, their skin being black right mm -hmm. so uh, and and but they were all the proud sons of their mothers who originated from the horn of africa so all these arab poets actually there they were half either uh, from the horn of africa or they were sometimes even completely in by themselves so one of these famous ones was antara the, the right. famous warrior poet right. um, right. who basically was so revered and his poetry was so magnificent that they became part of the Mu'allaqat, uh, those those group of seven long Arabic poems that were hanged or uh, uh, suspended over the Kaaba right. because they were, you know, they, they were so special. So Antar Rashida's famous poetic lines expressing his warrior spirit among the, one of them was, you know, I'm a man who, if taken alive, would have to be dragged in chains behind the meanest camel in the herd. <laughs> like mm -hmm. nothing else would have <laughs> kept me in captivity, you know? Uh, and one of, one of these other um, uh, famous poets were Khufaf ibn Umayr as Sulami, but he was also commonly known as Khufaf ibn Nudbah, which is Nudbah was his mom, his, his mother was called Nudbah. Mm -hmm. And there was also Sulaik ibn Salaka, uh, and he was also named after his mother. The last two individuals, as we just mentioned, were uh, uh, these ravens who are named after their mothers from, from, uh, from uh, uh, the Horn of Africa, Northeast Africa, right? And Antara's mother was named Zabiba. And so what these poet warriors have in common beyond their oratory skills and their martial arts is their common roots that link them back to the noble warrior class societies from the Horn of Africa, a link that can only be explained by a headstrong, proud woman as mothers. And there is another thing that links this Aghribat al-Arab to the Somalis in the sense of their name, which would be you know, if you look at the name Aghribat al-Arab or the crows or the ravens of the Arabs, mm. yeah, the name gives you an idea of obviously their black skin. You know, it's, they're named after their black skin or their blackness. Right. And the, the blackness in the Somali culture and language and the Somali psyche is associated with the tuke, which is also a raven. The, the Somali word for raven, which is an ancient Somali word that even still used for the crow and the raven took it. 
this Cushitic name, Tuka, uh, 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 is the original, as we mentioned, the original meaning of the color ebony and dark black. So you can you can see these links actually go beyond uh, language and culture and identities, and they they sort of uh, uh, repeat uh, and 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 transport one. <laughs> Uh, in in terms of uh, their cultures, and so yeah, the, it's it's very interesting. And then also, funnily enough, it's in Sahih Bukhari that we see the story uh, of the sons of Arfida. You know, in Sahih Bukhari, you know that famous hadith when the uh, the Abyssinians were in the Masjid of the Prophet وسلم, dancing with their spears and their shields, yeah, yeah, and performing. And um, Aisha yeah, was um, watching along with with the Prophet, so on, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is the hadith that's also used oh, okay. about, you know, about celebrating Eid. You know, yeah. celebrating the Eid and stuff. Right, and so right, you right, can right. see that these people actually. It's funny enough. The Prophet sallallahu called them sons of Arfida. He says, you know, Banu Arfida. Mm-hmm. Banu Arfida. And from if 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 you look at early Islamic literature, early Islamic historiography, hadiths, if you look them up, there are no, not much of a mention of the word Arfida. Even the scholars, when they're explaining this hadith in Sahih Bukhari, and it's transmitted in other uh, sunans and, and collections, it's transmitted in different varieties and versions. They, when they're explaining it, they say, what does Arfida mean? Because the Prophet called them the stems of Arfida. Mm-hmm. So who is Arfida, for example? What does it mean? Right, and I, I I like one of the best explanations that is unique and captures the spirit of what we're talking about today is by Imam al- uh, Ibn Mulaqin, uh, who says that Arfida is a group of artisans, group of artisans that are skilled in folklore, dancing, poetry, and 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 the skill set of warrior. Uh, and, and and showmanship, right? Mm-hmm. That performed for people and beside their warrior skills. And so these were the group of people that were called Banu Arfida. And as they were uh, performing in the Prophet's uh, Masjid, Sallallahu Alaihi and it's he is in that regard very right. And I like that explanation because if there were, you know, general term for the Habashis or the Abyssinians or Northeast Africans that would be used as an Arfida again and again. We would see them in the literature in many different contexts, but we do not see that. We only see it once, and that alone relates to the Hadith. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That, that, doesn't make, that makes complete sense, especially the fact that um, the Hadith has the uh, these... Um, Sons of Arfida. I'm, I'm not messed that pronunciation up. I gotta see how it looks. But they were no, the sons of Arfida, right? Yeah, okay. the son of Ar- the sons of Arfida. Arfida. Okay, they were dancing with spears and all. And um, I, I know the Hadith Abu Bakr. He um, was somewhat disdainful of it. And Aisha, she said that she came uh, from behind the Prophet and set her cheek on his cheek while she was watching them dance and all. And it's a nice idea. It's very. It's a very. Um, Touching how do you show some of the humanity of the Prophet? And the Prophet said, this is our day of celebration. I, I don't want to me- mess with the wording of it, but I, I know the hadith you're speaking of, so it is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, um, mm-hmm. we, I It's a very crucial hadith in, in, many, in many 
legal uh, aspects in the sense of how it, it it's used in very various legal aspects. It's used for the celebration of Eid. How do we celebrate Eid? What can we celebrate with? Can we dance? Can we use in musical instruments? Uh, can is is right, right. is is singing classed as a musical instrument? Can such a thing be done in a masjid? You know, and can women watch? Can men watch? Can uh, uh, how do you say uh, cultural um, uh, expressionism is it uh, unique? Uh, to the, the aspect that Arabic culture alone is tolerated or foreign cultures is, uh, are tolerated. There's so many aspects that the scholars use for this hadith. Mm, alhamdulillah. Now, we only got a few minutes left. I got to make um, Salat to Maghrib in a few minutes. But I wanted to, um, still sticking with these um, with this warrior class. Now, once the, um, you, you, you didn't quite um, mention if they were part of the, Islamic conquest or took part in if, of any of the Islamic conquest after the Prophet's time, maybe during the time of the Umayyads or Abbasids, were th- or any any other time of there was expansion of the Muslim um, mm-hmm. Muslim domain. Were, did they, any of these warriors take part in that, or how did that play out? So yeah, um, so it, as, as we mentioned earlier on, the the rich tradition of um, Warrior, warrior class and and uh, the skill set of poetry, you know, uh, because you know at the end of the day, many many cultures around the world, the, some of the things that they appreciate uh, most, especially in those days, was the ability to, you know, uh, how do how was the word uh, the ability to paint a picture with your words, and, okay, okay, uh, gotcha. about. Yeah, bring about bravery to the forefront. Um, Storytelling—it's—it's it's one of those you know things that you know that, that we even today appreciate when it comes to Hollywood and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so it's—it is—it's similar thing that these people had these type of skill set. Not only the oratory skill set, but also the martial arts skill set, and therefore they were extremely popular mm-hmm. uh, around the early expansion of Islam. But not only early expansion of Islam, but uh, subsequently the uh, the Umayyad dynasty, the Abbasid dynasty, the uh, uh, the, the the dynasties around um, how do you say in in um, uh, early uh, Mamluk dynasties and, and the and and yeah. What about so the Fatimids? The Fatimids as well, specifically okay. the Fatimids and right. the subsequent Ayubi dynasty that came right, and right. replaced the Fatimids. They're right in that same area, so that will make sense. Yeah, they, they they played a huge role, specifically the Fatimid, if I just mention a story mm-hmm. here that I like to underline. So the Fatimid, uh, they used extensive amount of warriors that came from Northeast Africa. They recruited to the point that the Fatimids were gradually replaced completely almost mm-hmm. the, their whole warrior class kind of became part of the uh, northeast africans huge numbers of northeast africans right. came there and so when the ayubid dynasty came and replaced the fatimid uh, uh, sultanate right. they put uh, they tried to put a lot of the turkish descent slaves or army officers and, and 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 commanders in place, and this just did 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 not go very well to the local 
power brokers as it were, these, these Northeast Africans. And subsequently, uh, there's a long story that has happened, but uh, an, a sort of a civil war broke out between the Ayyubid dynasties and right. former uh, loyalists of the Fatimid dynasties uh, or even you know remnants of the Fatimid dynasty hierarchy. To the point where Imam Makrizi mentions in his uh, uh, history book that around 50,000 people in Cairo, one way or the other, took literally like part of that civil war in, in, in the span of few days. Uh, um, part of that war mm-hmm. to the point where, you know, when the Northeast Africans were uh, uh, defeated because, you know, because huge numbers of um, uh, uh, support that the Ayyubids brought to bear, right? right? So because when they were defeated, they were their quarters were burned down, their houses, their wealth, to the point it became a massacre. Yeah, and Imam Makrizi uses that word to the point where it became a massacre of the Northeast Africans, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is uh, why Imam uh, Abdurrahman Abu Faraj Ibn al-Jawzi, a decade later in Baghdad, writes a, word, a book called um, Fadl al-Sudan, the, the superiority of, I think it was something along the line of, I forgot what the title was, but basically, no, sorry, Tanwir al-Ghabash, that's the title. Mm-hmm. Tanwir al-Ghabash uh, is the book that Imam Abdurrahman, Abdurrahman ibn al-Jawzi writes to defend people who came from Northeast Africa and say, you know, they had this nobility, they came from, because it was, it, so it, it became a huge, um, an image issue for, for people of that background. Okay. Yeah, I'd, um, last year or maybe the year before that, I did a deep dive into the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, the founder of the Ayyubid dynasty. And mm-hmm. and I, there, I do remember coming across that story. I didn't go into as much detail as, as you just went into, but after he mm-hmm. uh, managed to push aside the Fatimid or the last Fatimid sultan, the last Fatimid ruler, uh, he, was, um, he had to deal with lots of internal fighting and lots of people trying to kill him from the former regime mm-hmm. trying to assassinate him and there was this story of this uh they called them they just called them blacks in the english they just called them black people but now it, it all makes sense now you're connecting these dots now mm-hmm. they had to deal with this uprising mm-hmm. of these professional uh black soldiers or african soldiers that he had to deal with and at that time i believe um Salahuddin was still connected to nuruddin um zengi mm-hmm. over over in the um Syria, I believe, based in Damascus. So he had a lot more resources. He had his own resources in Cairo, and then, of course, he had Nuruddin to back him up over in Damascus. So he did have quite a few. And I do remember that they did, you know, they burned down the people's houses, and there was the stories of women crying and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I do remember that that's, that story. It is fascinating. After, um, I don't know if you know this, and this just came to my mind, because that's one of the not-so-great stories about Salahuddin. Everyone talks about him reconquering... Um, uh, Jerusalem and of course all that is good and fighting the crusaders and all mm-hmm. that part of him fighting um, these and I understand he was putting that re- it was a rebellion he was you know people have to all leaders are going mm-hmm. to have to deal with rebels and re- revolution and stuff like that so I don't completely blame him but it's especially in our society today where everything is juxtaposed it was black and white and, and race and ethnicity and today it, it doesn't come off as being that good uh, as as a good sign sign of especially when considering the fact that he did go beyond just defeating the military. He went and destroyed their homes and, as you mentioned, massacred mm. many of them. He chased them down, and some of the stories are really kind of brutal. 
after that period, do you know if there's any reconciliation or if he he um if any um um Northeast Africans took part in his later conquest where or joined sides with him against the Crusaders or anything like that? Do you know of any stories like that? If not, it's no problem, but just wondering if you had any I, feedback on that. Uh, on as a side note, I do know that there was an uh, a Ubid ally dynasty that operated from uh, Yemen, which was mm-hmm. called the the Banuna Jah. Uh, these are uh, basically again Northeast Africans uh, who um, sort of uh, initially Najah was an individual uh, he was the vizier of one of the sultans there right. uh, of the earlier dynasty he cooped the dynasty and then he got rid of the rivals and he set up his powerhouse in uh, what is uh, modern day if I'm not mistaken Zabit uh, and then uh, within decade or so he built a really strong dynasty in uh, Yemen or entirety of South Yemen and he had a close link with the Dahlak Islands in modern day Eritrea areas okay. uh, you know they operated from there as well so he imported huge number amount of uh, tacticians uh, professional capacity from Northeast Africa and so he was a closely uh, uh, linked with the Ayyubid dynasty at the time. And so the Banu Najah uh, um, uh, dynasty that we are talking about today, or at, at the moment that we are mentioning, they reigned, uh, they, they were quite early date. They reigned from 412 Hijri, which is 412 Hijri, mm-hmm. uh, and then the Krokorian calendar, that would be 1022, okay. till 553. Uh, which is 158, and so the these these were really closely um, uh, later on uh, associated and allied with that. But um, we do know that many many of the Muslim dynasties and empires couldn't do without the Northeast Africans, whether right. this was the capacity of slavery or just purely recruiting them from as, as part of the army or even as, as a clerks and, and, and politicians. You know, uh, some of the earliest uh, Ottoman um, uh, founders had mothers who came from mm-hmm. Northeast Africa, right? Or right. even had women who came from Northeast Africa. And so I think one of the... Um, uh, first um, managers of the palace uh, was a a, a, a a northeast african or habishi that mm-hmm. came directly from from uh, northeast africa from uh, you know what is today the horn right and he became eventually the 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 guy who uh, maintains the whole palace of the ottoman uh, uh, and the ottoman uh, the ottoman uh, how do you say the Ottoman Khalif at the time, right? right? right. So there, there are so many, so many individuals that, you know, oh, by the way, mm-hmm. one of the most famous ones as well is the, uh, from the Indian Ocean, uh, South Asia, that famous uh, ruler by the name of Malik Amber. Right. Uh, okay, okay, yes, yes. Familiar with. Mm-hmm. He directly comes from Northeast Africa. We know he mm-hmm. was an ethnicity-wise an Oromo. Oromo are uh, people who live in uh, modern Ethiopia today. Uh, he he was, as a child, exported from Zayla, modern-day Somalia, uh, and, and sold as a, a young boy to slavery, and then later on became Muslim, became very well-educated clerk, uh, administration-wise, money, 
you know, he left with his uh, his his master, who kind of was like his father, because you know they didn't have that master and slave mm-hmm. relationship, but they had more like a, a son and a, and a father relationship. Mm-hmm. He was really fond of him. And they traveled together to India. And when they traveled to India, he became sick. The 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 the, the owner became sick, and then he died there. But just before he died, he kind of had a will, and then he talked to the sultan in 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 that uh, in that area, and he took it under his wing, and then he became an administrator under him. And eventually, when he died or when he was killed in a battle. Malik Amber took over the reign and became the de facto ruler of the whole empire or the whole dynasty to the point where he recruited again him himself from people. I mean, uh, he recruited from the area he originally hailed from, i.e. his people, uh, the Oromos, the Somalis, the Afar, the people that live in those areas. He recruited from them and he imported them all the way to India. Some of them paid salaries, some of them were slaves, some of them was, like we said, clerks. And to the point he was so successful, right, that European powers at the time would write him letters trying to get him on their sides because the European powers were at each other's throat at the time for, for, for resources of the world. That's when they are sort of discovering the rest of the world in as it were. And so this guy was very popular in that time right. period and he was he was disliked by the the, the Mughal Empire. Mm-hmm. You know so subhanAllah there there's so many of these people dispersed across uh, uh, across the ages and geographical areas. Okay, yeah, I've heard I've heard of uh, Malik Ambar, and uh, you, I plan on talking about the um, Mughal Empire later this year, inshallah. And in uh, the notes, the brother helped uh, uh, pretty much prepared for me that I did see his name come up. So, inshallah, we'll talk about him more later on in the year, inshallah. Okay, um, brother Mom, I can talk with you for another five hours, but that probably wouldn't be <laughs> be uh, good podcasting. Uh, just a little bit over an hour now, and as I, mean, I, I do have to make salat. It's um, just a little before nine o'clock here, and um, salat to my crib is going to go out in about 20, 30 minutes or so. Sure, so, sure. Um, I know it's probably, I don't know, something like two o'clock in the morning where you are. I don't know. It's probably very early where you are. But Yeah, 10 to 2. <laughs> okay. All right. I, w- I want to give you some time to get some sleep, and I want to, again, thank you very much. And I know last time we said we we're going to do this again. It took us another year to do it, but let's not take a full year this time around. It's really my fault. I'm really blaming you. But inshallah, I want to get back together again and let's talk. Let's continue this conversation. This, as you mentioned, is a very critical region of the Muslim world, and I, I want to come back and talk about, and continue this discussion. Um, there's so much more I, I want to ask you and. Can I get another promise to yeah. you from you to meet me again or talk about this again, inshallah, later on, hopefully within a couple of weeks? I know I made this promise before, but I want to stick with it this time. I want to really stick with it this time, inshallah, to come back and continue this conversation. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I'm always at home with uh, Islamic History Podcast. And um, anytime anytime you you want me, I'm at your uh, beck and call, inshallah. Okay, alhamdulillah. Is um you gave us your contact information before um the last episode. Has anything changed? I know you're on Facebook as uh, I think um 
MMR ten or Muhammad mm-hmm. R ten. Still the same. So everything's still the same. Still okay. The same. So I'll just take your still I'll just take your information from the last one and put it into this one. Um, as far as yeah. this one is concerned, just same show notes as before. Um, islamichistorypodcast.com slash Somalia and you'll see the show notes for this one. I'll connect to all the different hadiths we mentioned. It may take me some time, but we're gonna have this available. Yeah. Uh, I have the, the material, so when you're ready, I'll um I can pass you the, the, the details, the references, sources okay. that people maybe can consult. Okay, alhamdulillah. That'll, that'll be good, inshallah. Okay, all right, uh, Brother Muhammad, I, I'm going to have to let you go. I'm going to stop recording in a few moments, so don't hang up. I will talk a little bit afterwards. This is, everybody doesn't no hear this. But anyway, again, thank you very much. And for everyone else listening, inshallah, we'll come back again next week with more information about the Islamic History Podcast. But until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.